This is Warrior's Way Podcast, Episode 8, and I'm James Eek. The Chinatown district of Yokohama has long been famous for its lively entertainment strip, which caters to the pleasure of tourists and servicemen. One hot summer night not too many years ago, a seaman's sayonara party was taking place in one of the clubs. All the party girls were singing and entertaining their beloved seagoing friends. Suddenly, the pleasantries of the party were interrupted by a large seaman storming into the bar. He was carrying a switchblade, opened in his right hand. Shoving his way into the throng, he yelled out the name of his girlfriend, whom he knew was there with his best friend. The place became deathly silent. The feeling of murder was in the air. Panic and fear took hold on everyone there except one person. A famous karate man who had been quietly observing the furious sailor leaned over the bar and whispered to the bartender to give him a sharp bread knife. The bartender surreptitiously complied. As soon as the karate man had the knife, he screamed at the top of his voice, Hey you, with the knife, making a sound that could nearly shatter the eardrums. At this, the startled seaman whirled around and stared at the karate man at the far end of the bar. Just at that moment, the karate man hurled the long bread knife at the seaman. It struck in the floor directly in front of him, and the seated karate man then intoned in a calm, commanding voice, Pick up the bread knife. You're going to need it, because I'm going to kill you now with my hands. Whereupon, the blustering, bullying sailor lost all his nerve, dropped his own knife, and he bolted for the door and was never seen again, at least not in that part of town. The gaiety of the party was immediately restored, as a hearty laugh was enjoyed by all. But the karate man's visit to the bar that night has never been forgotten by the few who realized the enormity of what he did. He prevented a murder with nothing more than what karate men call true ki, and his name is Richard Kim. I love that story. That's uh, from an awesome book called The Karate Dojo, Traditions and Tales of a Martial Art. It's written by a man named Peter Urban, um, someone better wise known as Sensei Peter Urban. Um, And the story that he's written about there, um, the reason why I think maybe I like that story so much is because Richard Kim, or as we called him, O-Sensei Richard Kim, he was um, my the he was the sensei that gave me my very first black belt years and years and years ago when I was uh, in my very early twenties. Um, I had not only the immense pleasure to have trained with Ho Sensei Richard Kim, but also Sensei Peter Urban, two very different people. Um, I think I'm going to save talking about Sensei Richard Kim for another podcast. Maybe we'll look at one of his books that he wrote. But uh, Peter Urban Sensei, he he was an amazing guy. Um, He passed away, like I said, in in 2004. And uh, you don't hear too much about him anymore. He's one of these people that when he was around, everybody in the martial arts knew about him. Um, 
I think perhaps the best word for it was it would be he was notorious. Um, and he was definitely unique. You have to remember, this is quite a long time ago for now. Um, when I started training in the martial arts, things were very different than they are today. If you did the martial arts, you wore a uniform, and they were pretty much always white. Um, you didn't wear all these patches on them and brand names and all the rest of these things. It was a white uniform, and you had your belt. And most martial arts were the same. I can remember when people first started wearing, you know, the names of their schools on their uniforms, and I always thought that was kind of weird because <laughs> I was so used to just a, a white gi. Um, Sensei Urban, though, in his school, they wore black. And that was probably fitting because he was a rebel when it came to the martial arts. Um, he himself, I think in the times that I trained with him, I may have seen him wearing gi pants once. He was usually wearing a muscle shirt with a towel around his neck, suspenders holding up his um, pants, which were usually cargo pants, bare feet, um, and either a golf visor on his head or a headband, like one of those 1980s sweatbands. <laughs> um, and his method of teaching was unlike anything that I'd ever experienced. He was very, very different um, and extremely skilled. His stories, though, that was the thing that has really lasted with me. And I'm so glad that he actually, um, either he thought to write these things down or someone impressed on him the need to write. Um, he was actually the one who told me uh, that if you are going to teach martial arts, you should write things. And you don't write it for you, you write it for, as he put it, legacy for your students and for their students. And here I am, you know, <laughs> a lot older than I was then, um, and I'm still reading a book that he wrote in the year I was born. Was, the Karate Dojo was written in 1969. Um, and I think that the stories that are in it are just as valid now as they were then, maybe even more so, because it talks to a time that's that's long gone of, you know, a harder time um, of people that proved their arts in a way that I don't think you really should or could today. Believe me, I don't want to see us go back to that time and um, by any stretch. But it is interesting. It is interesting. It's kind of the old west of the, the martial arts era. It's the same time when you hear about all these uh, Filipino masters that took part in dueling and, you know... It's after the, the Second World War and things were different. But it's still within that, that memory of those old masters that some of us had the, the great chance to actually train with. Um, Sensei Peter Urban, he was also one of the first people to start teaching what we call karate in North America. He had a, a school 
in the U.S. in New York City that he called the Chinatown Dojo. And he taught his own version of the Japanese system of goju. Uh, I'm not going to get into the politics of, of why that was, because there's a whole story to that. Um, but to suffice it, suffice it to say, he broke away from things that were going on in Japan and decided to go on his own. And if you can imagine, that's hard enough to do today. And he did this in a time when, you know, people didn't really, didn't really even know what karate was. And, uh, has seen this and rightfully so as a pioneer of karate in North America and definitely in the U S and, uh, and having martial arts schools, you know, he, uh, he did it before anybody else. That's for sure. And in a whole different kind of way, you have to respect that. That's a hard path to follow. Um, I was lucky enough to train with him and I, I have to say the way that he taught was very unorthodox. Um, he lined us up using words that were uh, something that you would hear someone, you know, giving commands to people parking cars. <laughs> and he wanted us basically sized by our rank and our height. And uh, it's just very incredible very incredible and very different from what I'd experienced, especially being as young as I was. Um, and back then having the limited experience that I had, and I was used to things being very formal and, uh, he was definitely the other side of that. I'm going to read a little bit more from this book. So this next part, it's called the Japanese magician. Oriental cultures have long been noted for their preference for the human mind and spirit over the efficiency and reliability of the machine. Perhaps it was the point of view of the Tokyo police once retained a karate master on their staff to serve as a lie detector. It was his task to listen to the interrogation of suspects and tell simply from listening and watching their facial expressions, characteristics, and mannerisms, whether they were speaking truth or untruth. The police officials valued his opinions highly and worked on his suggestions. Over a period of many years, it was found that not even once was the karate master wrong in his evaluations. The Japanese government eventually asked this karate master to go to Manchuria on a delicate political mission. He accepted, but while he was there, he was arrested by the hostile Chinese government and interned as a political prisoner. In prison, he was treated very badly. Although his jailers did not know who he was, they were afraid of him. They had nothing to base this feeling on, for he was a model prisoner. But for some reason, they all felt that he was different and potentially dangerous. Unlike most prisoners, he refused to succumb to apathy and inactivity. He trained in karate every day, alone in his cell, keeping himself healthy in spite of the worst conditions. Since he communicated with no one and could often be found in a trance-like meditation, some of the more suspicious guards believed him to be a magician. Eventually, his identity became known to the officials of the prison, who thereupon issued orders that he must, at all costs, be broken. If successful, it would be a great feather in their cap and a great loss of face for the Japanese to prove 
the vaunted self-control and strength of Japanese karate to be a mere myth. They were not successful. The sensei was placed in solitary confinement in total darkness. He was given just enough food to sustain life. He was forced to undergo torture, and the Chinese have developed torture to a fine art. None of this affected him. Placing himself in a trance by means of meditation and breathing, he felt neither pain nor emotion nor hunger. He completely confounded his captors and caused even the prison's hardened guards to look upon him with awe. Finally, the prison officials decided upon a supreme test. After much effort and trouble, they began to procure a tiger. To be sure, it was not a Bengal tiger in the prime of health, but nonetheless, it was a tiger. They placed the animal in a cage and kept it hungry for three days. The plan was to thrust the Japanese karate master in the cage, completely naked. If he were in a trance and could feel nothing, he would be killed and he would be eaten. Then the Chinese could charge him with cowardice, saying that he was afraid to die fighting, an unthinkable act for a samurai or martial arts man. The plan was carried out. They thrust him into the cage with the tiger and apparently at the mercy of a certain fate. In karate, nothing is impossible. The moment he entered the cage, the karate master seemed possessed. With a terrifying roar, he attacked the tiger. Almost before anyone could realize what was happening, he had knifed the tiger in the nose, disorienting the animal, and then he smashed his elbow across the ear of the cat as he dove onto its body before it could recover from the initial shock. The Japanese magician, as he was later called by his captors, then embraced the huge cat from behind its neck, applying a reverse armbar choke. He tightened every muscle in his body and let out an intense, sh- sh- sorry, an intense shattering scream right into the ear of the animal as he strangled it with all his strength and willpower. The tiger died of oxygen starvation in less than 20 seconds. The spectators were terrified as they gazed upon this man. He looked almost like the incarnation of a tiger himself, and they were convinced that he was not human, that he was possessed by the devil. The witnesses all claimed that he entered the cage with no fear and that, in fact, the tiger seemed afraid of the man. Everyone in the political camp was deathly afraid to go near the captured Japanese gentleman and all breathed a sigh of relief when he was finally released. His name was Gogen Yamaguchi. Once every year to this day, a group of men, all former prisoners in Manchuria, gather with him and eat brown bread and drink plain water, for this was their diet for over two years. They do this as a reunion to remember the past, appreciate the present, and give thanks to their God for the future. That's something. Gogen Yamaguchi, Sensei Yamaguchi, he is seen as the founder of the Japanese system of goju karate. And when he was alive, he was known as the cat. Partially because of his cat-like reflexes and partially because of this story, which from everything I've ever heard is true, as crazy as that sounds. I had an opportunity to train with Yamaguchi's son back when I was, just actually after 
I trained with Peter Urban Sensei. And uh, he was a pretty amazing martial artist in his own right. And I have heard of the amazing things that Yamaguchi Sensei would do. He was seen as kind of a martial arts mystic. He'd go into the mountains in Japan and um, go into retreat for days, practicing his martial arts and meditating under waterfalls and other things like that. Pretty amazing. A lot of the old school martial artists really devoted themselves completely to their martial art. That's the thing to remember. We might hear these stories and we think, yeah, that's a load of BS. But we forget that the human body is capable of doing some pretty amazing things. And, you know, it's not impossible that these masters went through this. It's not impossible that this guy did this. Especially when you think about how good you can get in your martial arts. I mean, there's lots of stories, you know. You take something as simple as my jiu-jitsu teacher, Professor Jean-Jacques Machado, and you realize that he rose to the level that he did in jiu-jitsu or has in jiu-jitsu, um, defeating virtually everybody that came in his way. And he did this with one hand. The man only has fingers on one hand. In an art that you need to grab a hold of the person. <laughs> and there's more stories than that, you know. Um, when I think of the amazing things that I've seen my teacher Gurudan and Osanto do, who is almost 82 years old right now. Um, it's amazing, you know. But perhaps what's more amazing is the fact that so few people ever rise up to find out what they are capable of. You know, we give ourselves excuses that we can only do this or we can only do that or I'm too much this and I'm too much that and never really devote ourselves to becoming better. Never do the work that we know that we could or should do or we just scratch the surface. But that generation, they pushed themselves, you know. They strive to be far better than they thought would be possible. And if you take all that into account and, you know, stories of men fighting tigers, that should be the norm. <laughs> well, maybe not the norm. But um, we are capable of some pretty amazing things. You know, like I've, not to say that what I've done is amazing by any stretch, but, you know, I can tell you I, what it's like to fight a wolf where most people are like, you aren't really serious that you fought a wolf. <laughs> Let's see the scars. Um, but I did, 
you know, and I'm lucky that I'm still here and I'm still talking. And I'm sure if you could talk to Gogen Yamaguchi sensei, he would say, yeah, it happened. I kind of wish that I didn't kill it and I wish it didn't happen. But yeah, it did happen. You know, no different than warriors who fight in wars talk about battles that you know, if you read the documentation of the amazing things that some of these guys have done, um, you would think it's it can't be possible that one person did that. And then you find out that it is true. Us, us human beings, we're incredible things. We're very strong and very smart, and we're capable of doing many things if we put our mind and our body to it, if we train hard and we work at it or if we are pressed with no other choice. And I think that's an important lesson to learn. All right. So, again, those that little bit that I read in the other story, they were from a book called The Karate Dojo, Traditions and Tales of a Martial Art by Peter Urban. I think you can still find copies of it. This one is one of the originals, and... Uh, like I said, if it's on, if I was asked of books that you should read as a martial artist, I think that this is one of them. And you might say to yourself, well, I don't do karate. Well, you know what? Like I said in previous podcasts, we've only put the label on it that it's karate. If he had learned his martial art in China, it would be called the Gong Fu school <laughs> or if he had learned jujitsu it would have been the jujitsu school um don't worry about names don't worry about any of it you can learn about anything and everything from everyone and always remember that so anyways let's go to some questions here um I was asked recently to talk about what I think the utility of forms are in the martial arts. So if you don't practice a martial art yet, um, in some systems, they do uh, things like kata or um, they, they called various different names. So, it, you know, in Silat, for instance, they're called jurus. In uh, karate, they're called kata. It doesn't really matter what they're called and it really doesn't matter what the martial art is. Um, I think there is utility in learning forms. Now, that said, those of you who train with me or have trained with me are like, well, you, you, we don't really do many forms. <laughs> um, I have kind of the view of the fact that you should learn how to um, protect yourself first. So I'm saying this from the perspective of somebody who's been training in the martial arts for about, well, coming up to 40 years. Um, and I think that in terms of what I need to teach to my students, um, among other things, I need to teach them that they can defend themselves. And defending yourself is probably the the key thing to get from your martial arts in that first few years. So that means that you need to know how to punch and kick and how to throw people and how to do trapping and how to grapple. And you need to get good enough at that that you are better than the average person on the street at 
the beginning level. In time, though, um, it's probably useful to learn some forms. Forms can show you um, a different aspect of your training. For instance, it can show you how to do better footwork. It can show you, um, well, for instance, in Jeet Kune Do, in Jun Fan Kung Fu portion of Jeet Kune Do, there's something called Ung Moon, and that teaches proper structure and vocabulary. Um, and, and so on. Anyways, I won't get too much into forms. The key thing to remember, though, is if you practice forms, but you don't know what the movement is that you're doing, you're kind of blinding yourself. You're limiting yourself. Not only that, but you're not getting the benefits you could get. You know, you need to be able to defend yourself against someone throwing a haymaker at you. And I don't think doing a form is going to do that. Not immediately. So what do I think of the utility of forms? I, I think they're very good. I think that they're a great thing for people to practice. I love them myself. Um, I've practiced a lot of different martial arts that, and I know a lot of different forms. Um, but when I'm teaching my students, I want them to be able to defend themselves first. I'd hate to think I'm teaching a form and that person can't defend themselves. I hope that answers the question. So learn forms, <laughs> but train in the martial arts for reality as well. Forms are good for practicing when you're on your own. So the next question is, what is the best martial art for anyone over 50? And I would say the one that you do. That might sound a bit like a roundabout answer, but in reality, that I think is the answer. Um, the one that you do is the best one that you can do for anyone over 50. Because for someone, well, I'm almost 50, I'm 49 years old. And while I've been doing that, this for most, almost my entire life, um, most people haven't. So coming into a martial art when you're 50 or over can be daunting. Um, you have to be patient with yourself. You have to acknowledge the fact that you're not 20 years old. Um, you need to be very aware of your body and what it can do right now and what it will need some time to get to. Um, but I don't think you should limit yourself. I don't think you should... Listen to people that say, oh, you're over 50, you shouldn't do jujitsu, for instance. Or, oh, you're over 50, you shouldn't do, you know, karate, or you shouldn't do kickboxing, or whatever. Because people have a lot of weird opinions about a lot of things, to be honest with you. Um, but I think that as long as you're training, you're going to get a benefit. Is it going to be harder when you're over 50? Man, everything's harder when you're getting older, Right. When you're 30, things are harder than when they when you were 18. But I don't look at the age 50 as some kind of a stop sign and it's time for you to stop doing everything and start, you know, whatever, playing shuffleboard. The martial arts is something that is for everybody. Does it mean that if you're starting when you're 50, you're going to have to be a little bit patient and more observant? Yeah, probably. You know, but this, I'd say the same thing for anybody. 
you know, the only ones you don't really need to worry too much are the ones that are joining when they're 10. <laughs> they're just going to have a blast. And you know what? The reality is, is that 10-year-old is still inside of you when you're 50. So just have a blast. Just be careful and have some fun. If you have the ability to train in a few different things, that would be my advice. See how much time you have. Try to cross-train in a bunch of different stuff. Have a grappling system. Have a striking system. Have a weapon system. And that's a, that's a good bet. Um, I personally like my things that I practice. But I'm not going to tell you that, oh, you should do Jeet Kune Do, you should do Kali, you should do Silat, you should do Jiu Jitsu, you should do kickboxing, you should, you see what I'm saying? That's me. You're going to find what you like. But be open-minded and try different things. If you have the time, try it. You know, and if you get more time, add some more to your plate. Why not? You might find that at 50 plus, you're going to make a decision to train the martial arts and change your life in a way that you never would have expected. And you'll just wish that you had done it sooner. The next question is a fun one. It's... Um, what is my favorite martial arts movie? Well, I have a lot of them. <laughs> um, I, I like movies, I have to admit. Um, I'll mention two of my favorite martial arts movies, though. One is called Black Belt. Oh, no, sorry. It's called Red Belt, and uh, it is about jujitsu. And actually, it has not only um, the Machado brothers from my jiu-jitsu lineage, but it also has my teacher, Dan Osanto, in it. And uh, it's actually, it's a really, really good movie. Uh, I don't know how much attention it got when it was out, but I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, it's really, really good, and the lessons in it, I think, are great. It's about... Uh, guy who's trying to make ends meet teaching what he sees as pure jujitsu um, and I don't want to give it away but anyways red belt check it out the other one that I really like is one from my uh, my youth and that's called the last dragon and nowadays, if you saw that, you would probably be like, oh my gosh, this is the cheesiest thing ever. Um, but if you can get past that, I think that you will love it. Um, it's about a guy named Bruce Leroy, and I think he's in um, Harlem. And it's got great music in it. It's got great martial arts in it. It's got some really cool philosophical things in it as well. And it made a lasting impression on me when I was a, a young guy in the martial arts. And uh, you should check it out. Be open-minded and check it out. I, I, that's one movie that I can't understand why somebody hasn't grabbed it and remade it. Because honestly, I think that one has so much potential to be even better because um, let's face it the movies they make today are a bit better than the ones they used to make 
But that's why they call them classics. <laughs> Anyways, um, I think we'll leave it there for this podcast. Um, again, if you're enjoying this podcast, please uh, leave a review or give it some stars. Let other people know about it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Tell the people that you train with. Yeah, because, you know, if nobody listens to it, I'm probably not going to keep doing it. <laughs> but if you're enjoying it, please uh, give it a plug. That would be great. And get the word out. Um, also, if you're enjoying it and you haven't read my books, please pick up a copy of my books. Um, you can get them on ebook, you can get them on Amazon. Um, I've written two martial arts books. One is called Warrior's Way. Surprise, surprise, it's where this podcast name comes from. And the second one is A Wolf in the Woods. We'll talk about Wolf in the Woods in, a, in future podcasts, I'm sure. Um, it's about me in that fight with that wolf I was talking about and how it kind of changed my view of training and what I should teach my students and all of that. If that's not a teaser to listen, <laughs> nothing is. So yeah, buy my books. Um, and if you have any questions, please send them my way. Let me know what you might like me to talk about, um, questions that I might be able to answer for you, or anything else for that matter. Um, this podcast is not just about martial arts, it's about life, and it's taking the things that we can learn in the martial arts and using them to live better lives. Um, at the end of the day, I think that it's best if in your training it forces you to think about you and about your life. And I hope this podcast does that as well. Makes you be a little more engaged and think about things. And that your training, the time on the mats, is just the groundwork that you're doing to living a better life off of those mats. And hopefully this podcast is adding to that. So, without further ado, enjoy your day. Get out there. Train hard. Have fun. Be good to people. Be good to the world. And have a great life. <laughs>